The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. All right. Hello. My name is Christopher Bono. I am uh, currently the editor-in-chief of the Spine Journal, which is NASA's journal. Uh, I was previously a deputy editor of that journal, also a deputy editor in the past for uh, the Yellow Journal uh, for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. I hold some other titles, um, past president of NAS in 2015 to 2016, currently the executive vice chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, uh, a full professor at Harvard, and um, the Edith M. Ashley Professor of Orthopedic Surgery there, as well as the program director for the Harvard Combined uh, Orthopedic Residency Program. My name is Andrew Schoenfeld. I am an associate professor and vice chair of clinical academic affairs in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Spine, uh, previously a deputy editor for Spine at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and a deputy editor for Evidence and Methods at the Spine Journal. Thank you for taking your time to listen to us discuss one of our real passions. Yes, I would agree it's a real passion, and uh, it's a very impressive list of accomplishments, Andrew. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, I mean, I'm always ripe to talk about research, and I think both you and I get asked a lot of questions from individuals these days about how secrets or techniques to get their research published, and I think it's very valuable for us to just kind of share the general outlook, the current environment, the research environment, and what we're looking for, and how people can situate themselves for success in um, getting their valuable research published. I think that's a great topic to talk about. And, you know, that probably talking about that topic is always, is there one particular study, one secret sauce of how do you get your research published? And I would say the answer to that is no. I mean, we we see all kinds of different uh, research that's being published, whether it's retrospective, prospective, database studies, uh, randomized controlled trials, the holy grail. And uh, I know you at Spine and me at, at uh, the Spine Journal, we will publish all of those types of articles, but then lots of them are, are getting rejected. So the reasons that they're rejected, well, let me ask you, we'll start off. What, what would be a reason that you would reject an RCT? Because some people feel like, well, if I did an RCT, it should get published. And, and I would say if you've done an RCT that is well done, methodologically sound, and checks all the boxes and is rigorous, it, it's going to get published. I mean, because that's what, that's the white whale that we're all um, right. hunting, really. And when that comes across your uh, submission desk, you're like, oh, wow, this is great. But some people call things RCTs that are not really RCTs. Um, if it's a very small sample, if the study is underpowered, meaning that they are doing an RCT, but they're only doing it on four or five individuals for, you know, in an extreme case, um, then it's not going to be successful because you can't actually answer the question that you're trying to uh, address in the randomized study. And I think that, you know, I would say across the board, and I'm interested in your take on this as well, um, there is no special, it can only be prospective, it can only be retrospective, there's no single ideal study but it has to be, it's a clinically relevant question, it's interesting, it's novel, it's timely, and then whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing it in a methodologically sound and as robust a way as possible. It doesn't mean that every study has to have 
fancy statistical methodology. It's just we want to answer this question, the methodology that we're using matches up with this. Yeah, would totally agree. And, and just getting back to the to the RCTs, yes, it's the it, it's the the holy grail. But there are a lot of ways that you can, let's say, screw it up. And and there are also ways that you may not be you hadn't screwed up any part of the study. You did the study methodologically great, but you're just not including all those high points in in your in your write up. Did you report your your uh, power analysis? Did you do a power calculation at the end if you didn't find a significant difference? And how what was your randomization process? You know, there are just kind of checklists that we go through that we're looking for. And if it's missing, it's like you know, this is this is not this is not spelling like it, it's gonna it's gonna pass uh, the test. And as far as other, those other study types, it has to make sense. You know, there are a lot of studies that we see that are uh, that are submitted, and it's. Uh, association studies and and these are primarily retrospective based on some series of patients usually hundred 200 patients and they're looking for risk factors you know we we now have a, a tremendous amount of information and studies being uh, submitted on risk factors but the risk factors for strange things like uh, I mean subsidence of a cage is is, uh, is something that is important to know uh, not to call out any specific type of study but how many studies do you need to know about the risk factor for cage subsidence if it's being done uh, through the right side or the left side or this and that? And there's, there's a risk, a real risk of finding factors that make absolutely no difference purely based on the statistics because you have a certain number of patients and, and it's not something that's clinically controllable or applicable. You know, don't spend your time doing these studies because you just have this data set and you want to do something with it and then submit it and then expect it to be published. It's not going to influence what people do. Yes, I think those are all really great points. I think that, that you know, individuals have sometimes a hard time conceptually getting that idea. They say, oh, it's a really big study, or uh, we have more patients than this previous study oh, did, yeah. or we have more follow-up than this previous study did. But I, I think what it really, the way you can help situate yourself for success and immunize yourself against some of this is make sure that the research is hypothesis driven. If oh, you yes. have a clinically relevant hypothesis that you're asking and you set the table with, this is what we are trying to do with this particular question at hand, and then that naturally plays into, so then we had this data set, and then we did these statistical analyses or the, used these techniques or did this randomized study, that just really kind of lays the foundation, lays, paves the road to make it a smooth process from submission to acceptance. Very much agree, and, and I love the, the, that comment that you made about hypothesis, is that really should be the germination of a study, is you're asking that question. And then you love to see that in the write-up. It's like, this was our hypothesis, and this is how we tested it. I would say very often studies don't come, submissions don't come with a hypothesis. It's this is what this is what we did and we found these findings and now we don't know what to do with it, but here I think you should publish it. <laughs> that's not something that, that's that we're really gonna be very interested in. It it doesn't really drive forward understanding. And I think that's another uh, another point is that what we're looking for is driving forward understanding of a topic of an issue in spine that's gonna contribute to the literature. There are lots of little iterations and me too's and things that could be done, but we're really, really looking, is this a scientific uh, study that is, is going to add to our current knowledge? So one of the things that you just mentioned about high patient numbers is 
some people who are doing studies, they're, they're, very, uh, they, they're very focused on, we, we included 10,000 patients or 100,000 patients. They're using InSquip databases and all these other databases. Uh, I'm a little bit frustrated by the, the, the quality of these studies because just by having 10,000 or 50,000 patients in your study doesn't mean it's really going to answer the questions. What, what, do you, what do you feel about that, Andrew? Yes, uh, definitely. I think that there's um, there are a lot of databases out there these days. Um, some have more advantages over others. I think if for an individual who's interested in using a database, it should not be let's ask Nisquip or Pearl Diver this question. It's we have this question. Come back to the hypothesis-driven work. Right. We have this question. Which data set could potentially answer this question? And then if it's a logical choice, use the methodology appropriate to that. Some of these data sets have very limited windows in terms of post-surgical uh, surveillance, or even it's just inpatient, if you're talking about nationwide inpatient sample or national inpatient sample, as it's now called. Um, in addition, when you're, some of the points that you touched on circling back to the discussion, really help the reviewer, help the editor, help the reader out by saying, these are the take-home messages from this work. And if the take-home message is, these are risk factors for surgery procedure X in condition Y for outcome Z, and that's all you got, that's not gonna be that successful. If it's um, more research needs to be done in this area, that's not really a, a strong conclusion for right. a paper. So if these are kind of the boilerplate sort of discussion points or the conclusion points, I think you should take a step back, go back to the drawing board and, and really think about, you know, what is a salient cogent message that we have that's supported by the data and it doesn't matter, again, the, the type of analysis that you're doing from an RCT to a level four retrospective study, all those questions, all of those points should be answered if you're going to have a product that's going to be successful um, at our journal or, or uh, any journal, really. Uh, I very much agree. You know, when you talk about take-home messages, you know, one of the more important parts of, of a manuscript is the conclusions, you know, both the abstract and in the paper. And sometimes the conclusions are far, far reaching. They're far beyond what the data, what the data presented in the study is actually about. And, and you, can, you can understand, you know, the author is kind of formulating, it's like, well, we, we, we showed A, B, and uh, therefore you should, be, you should be doing procedure X. It's like that, that logic doesn't always flow. So it, it takes a little bit of restraint to keep your, your thoughts from, from meandering, but be very, very concrete and clear. Here's what your data shows. Reflect on that data. If you want to suggest some other stuff, demonstrate a rationale of how it's going to influence something else, but really stick to what, what your data shows uh, and, and don't assume that we know what's going through your mind. And I think with that uh, key detail on conclusions, that concludes the uh, time that we have to discuss this. I think it's really been great. And in just a small amount of time, we've provided a great deal of information that's uh, of value to the, uh, our, our readership and those conducting research in this space. That's great. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank Went you. Went by too fast.